Louise Bedford here. Just before we kick off with today's show, I wanted to let you know that for one week only, you can get up to 84% off a selection of my most popular trading education products available through tradinggame.com.au. Make no mistake. Your financial future is in your hands. So check out the audios, videos, and study courses that I have available at tradinggame.com.au. Now's your chance to develop your skills as a trader for up to 84% off, but only for the next week. Let's get on with the show. Caroline Stephen, financial journalist. Cold, haunting, lonely. The summit ridge of Everest is the most remote place on earth. In last week's show, we left mountaineer Patrick Hollingworth on the summit. And in today's show, we go back to the highest place on earth to hear the rest of his interview. Why does Patrick climb? What's the joy for him? Well, we find out. And he gives us his pearls of wisdom that he's gained from climbing the highest peaks in the world. Louise Bedford joins us on the show today for a cracking mind power on how to stop ruminating and start problem solving. And with the federal budget fresh off the ranks and the big banks hit, we talk to economist and Sky Business News commentator Jonathan Barrett for a look at the markets for the week ending the 12th of May. Jonathan Barrett, hello and welcome back to Talking Trading. Good morning, Caroline. It's been a while, John. Good to have you back. The big banks bear the lion's share of the budget repair with the tax to raise $6.2 billion over the next four years. Jono, how did the budget pan out? Look, Caroline, it's quite interesting. And you actually think about it um, when you look at Malcolm Turnbull, how he has been a banker. Now, he obviously has a bit of an inside track as to how much money the banks obviously make and where they make it. You know, and, and it's interesting that the, the government has a grab. Remember, we had the metals and mining tax uh, where the government sought to, to grab revenue from that. And now they're doing it from the banking sector. But, but I think a lot of Australians will actually enjoy the banks getting hit a little bit, not the shareholders, purely because they're always making so much money. And uh, I think if the government can redirect that money into something positive, infrastructure or whatever, then at the end of the day, I, I think it's not a bad thing, quite positive. However, the bank shares have been hit. Um, they have been uh, under a lot of pressure, but I don't think it'll be lasting for too long. And, and in fact, at the end of the day, I think they'll, they'll recover quite nicely. Would you like to go into some of the winners and some of the losers of the federal budget? Look, I, I generally think we, we know that at the end of the day, um, you know, all the banks, you know, they're definitely the losers you know, when you look at the market's perspective. I, I think generally when you, when you go through it, I think the market's more focused not on the general losers, but the, the outcome of the budget towards what's ahead, um, and that's in terms of commodity markets. Now, the market uh, or the budgets relied heavily on income, royalties received and the income received from iron, ore and coal. Uh, those two commodities have been under an awful lot of pressure um, just over the last week, and when you come up to a budget that has so much spend uh, in it and infrastructure spend in it, and the market and the government relied so much uh, on these commodity markets, it, it could be quite hard 
I think, for them to raise the necessary money. So it could be a bit of an issue down the track if those two markets don't really recover. Are we seeing a low with them? I look, it's, I think we are getting very close to it. Uh, if you think that um, iron ore, for instance, was trading at $94 a dry tonne, it's now down at 60 Coal in itself has, um, has come under a lot of pressure, close to around about 15 to 20% on the downside. I think we should be getting close to it. But once again, it's all about that feel about China. It's all about that consumption, uh, the consumption of iron ore and coal for energy. It's all reliant on China. And that sort of gives me a little bit of nervousness, seeing that we're putting a lot of our eggs, a lot of our economic eggs, I guess, into the well-being and how China goes. So I think there's a bit of a concern out there, but hopefully we're getting close to a low. What opportunities are you looking at this week, Jono? Look, I, I'm sort of looking at the Aussie dollar. Um, the Aussie dollar's come under a lot of pressure. We need a low dollar to help stimulate our exports. But uh, I think the Aussie down in these levels, I think, is attractive from an investor's perspective. Um, also, I'm sort of having another look at gold at these levels because I think gold down here um, could have a little bit of a bump, purely on a technical basis on that gold trade, just the Aussie and the gold. Seeing how iron ore pans out, I think there might be a little bit of hurt out there with the high-cost iron ore producers, but I think at the end of the day, that might represent a good opportunity. Jono, always love talking to you. Thanks for your time. Great stuff, Caroline. Have a good day. That which you nurse grows. If you have a problem or an issue that you're dealing with, if you feed it and continually think about it, it will take over your thoughts and it can take over your life. We ruminate, we worry about problems. These things keep us awake and we churn them over and over in our minds. Often our thoughts are very negative about ourselves and positive about others. We worry, will I be good enough to trade? Maybe that person knows more than I do. Clearly they're more clever, brighter. They have a better looking spouse. They have more refined children. Clearly they are in a better position to be a trader than me. Little old me, why do I deserve success? We belittle our own actions and we magnify the actions of others. Be wary of this. The more you nurse your negative thoughts, the more they will grow to dominate your life. One of the reasons why we think over these things again and again is because our subconscious doesn't trust us. If we've had a track record of not solving our own problems effectively, then our subconscious doesn't trust us enough to be able to solve the next problem that we encounter. A problem well-defined is half solved. If you can fully define your problem, then you can break it down and detooth it and make it into where it really belongs in your life in terms of perspective. Maybe this isn't a 9 or a 10 out of 10 in terms of drama, in terms of resonance, in terms of the impact it will have on your life. Maybe by defining that problem, you can break it down and really put it as a 2 or a 3 out of 10 in terms of priority. What I would urge you to do if you're facing a problem and you're constantly ruminating about that situation is plot a solution into tiny, tiny building blocks. 
Work out the direction that you'd like to go to solve that issue, but break it down so that it doesn't seem so immense in your life. And then once you've started breaking that down, break it down into a point that you can fulfill today towards that solution. Momentum will gradually take over with this. To begin with, it will feel like you're getting nowhere. But when you look back, you'll realize that you've made progress. You'll see ticks on your page instead of a big fat blank because you don't know where to start. And you will course correct. Just because you've set out on one particular direction, it doesn't mean that you'll continue on that direction. As momentum takes over, you'll be inspired. You'll course correct to find the best way to solve that issue that you've been ruminating about. And when you do, you'll be one step closer towards living the trader's life. Need a little short-term trading magic in your life? Chris Tate and I are touring Australia to give you our one-day course so that you can trade the short-term trends and raid the markets. We're coming to the Gold Coast, Sydney, Perth and Melbourne. And you want to be in that room as we reveal our secrets. Go to tradinggame.com.au for details. tradinggame.com.au The Summit Ridge of Everest is the most remote place on earth and in the mountains death is very real on last week's show we left mountaineer patrick hollingworth on the summit and we go back there today to hear the rest of his interview i started by asking patrick is there a haunting feeling up on the top of everest yeah yeah it it, it is haunting up there in a way i guess because you know, particularly up on that summit ridge, you know, it's so wild and, you know, it's 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 probably the most, well, it's the most re- remote place on earth, really. And and you're walking in the footsteps of all of these mountaineering greats. Um, in some regards, it feels like you're walking through a museum, you know, you, and it's just amazing to think, wow, you're actually experiencing it firsthand. Um, and now when I see Everest, particularly if you're, if you're coming into land at Kathmandu, just before you come to land, you can actually see the Himalayas on the horizon. And, you know, you're cruising through about 9,000 metres on your plane and then here are the Himalayas sticking up at that same altitude and you can look out and see Everest. And and to think that you've, you know, you've been up on that summit and it looks so cold and lonely, um, yeah, it's haunting. And you reflect back on all the amazing experiences that mountaineering is giving you, all the amazing friendships. And so there's a real sense of celebration and achievement. But there's also a sense of, of loss for me in mourning. I think loss for that time in my 20s when I was such an active climber, living my dreams and just doing all of it. It was amazing. And also a sense of loss for, for my friends who, who, who didn't make it back. And, you know, I've lost a, whole, a bunch of friends in the mountains and, and, and particularly, you know, one of my good friends, Aang, who, who was killed on Everest and another good friend of mine, Numgal, who also died just near the summit. Um, it's hard not to look on the mountain and think, wow, you know, they they died up there as well and you can't not be moved by it. And, yeah, it's for me, it's stuff that I can never really get over. Um, I'm always still kind of processing it because I never got to say goodbye to them. But I guess that happens to all of us in life. It's just that they're not always killed on Mount Everest, that's all. 
Do you think there are too many commercial expeditions going to Everest now? Um, yeah, look, I, I think there are. Um, I mean, it's it's a complex situation. Nepal is a very poor, impoverished country, and the government and the country gets a lot from mountaineering. So they get millions of dollars in revenue annually just from mountaineering permit fees. So it's in their interest to have more commercial operations on the mountain. Um, but what it means is that there's a lot of relatively novice people who really shouldn't be on such a big mountain putting other people's um, lives at, at risk. And so you've got a system which basically relies predominantly on Sherpa climbers. And so Sherpas are the local ethnicity, so local ethnic, ethnic group, and it's also most of us know it as a job description, so it's both. Um, and Sherpa climbers are, are without a doubt the most competent and um, naturally gifted, talented, high-altitude mountaineers on earth, bar none. They're just amazing. So how many um, deaths per year are we talking on Everest? Look, it varies. Um, I don't know what how many there were this year. Last year was pretty bad, 23, I believe, with the earthquake, which was just on in base camp. The year before, in 2014, there was a massive um, avalanche in the icefall and 16 climbers were killed. They were all Sherpas including a really good friend of mine, Ankaji Sherpa. Ang and I had climbed Everest together. The year that I was there, there were four deaths. Um, so it does take, it does kill a lot of people, but it's grossly, grossly overweighted towards the Sherpa community because, um, and this is the downside of expeditional, of commercial climbing, because it relies so much upon Sherpa strength to fix the route on the mountain to stop the camps, that they're exposed to this, um, incredible danger, much greater risk than your actual client who's paying the money to be there. So it's, it, in its least, it's, it's unethical. <laughs> Patrick, why do you do it? Why do you climb these incredibly hostile mountains at insane altitudes? I'm sure no one's called you lazy. What's the joy? <laughs> Funnily enough, I am pretty lazy, but... <laughs> But just not when I'm in the mountains. Um, look, more than anything, it's that, that sense of wonderment of being in a natural environment. Um, being in the mountains, I become the best person that I can be. It's, it's where the best of me really kind of comes out. I, I like being up against adversity. And then it's remarkable what kind of comes out from individuals when they're up against adverse, adversity and uncertainty. And essentially, it's a, it's a sense, again, it's that sense of privilege of being somewhere that very few people have been and being able to really be in that moment and live it and then appreciate it for what it is, its beauty, its simplicity, its complexity. You know, there's a whole bunch of paradox in the mountains. If you look at it from a purely rational perspective, you would think there's no point in doing this. Why risk your life? Why do it? One of the great things around mountaineering is it will actually kind of put you closer in touch with your own uh, questions around death, which is something which we kind of ignore in Western society. And, you know, it's something we don't ever talk about, but you're exposed to it more often. You consider it more often when you're over there. And that's not such a bad thing. It's not a morbid fascination, but it's just actually a fundamentally real recognition of our the, the fragile state of human life, you know, which is something I think we take for granted quite a lot. So how do you apply this to the real world and city living? Um, yeah, so, um, I mean, personally, I apply it just by, um, um, it, it gives me a balance on life because when we're all caught up in that nine to five kind of 
race or whatever you want to call it, we can be completely overwhelmed by it can consume us. But very quickly, once you get in the mountains, you realize that it's not entirely real um, and, and that you actually have choices in our life and we don't have to go down that road if we don't want to. Oh, you know, I've made choices in my life which enable me to pursue pursue the mountains, but also pursue you know a, a, a relatively normal life here in Australia. And you know, I, I'm a dad. I'm responsible for a three year old daughter, and um, but I think I'm a better person as a result of that. I run my own consulting business, so I've been a, a business consultant for for nearly twenty years. These days, I do a bunch of consulting work with larger traditional organisations who are going through um, rapid change. And part of the work I do is, is um, I guess, is based upon my learnings from that mountain environment about how to deal with chronic uncertainty and complexity because it's an environment, well, that environment of, of uncertainty and complexity, it's, it's rife in the mountains, but increasingly it's, it's rife in the everyday kind of business um, landscapes. From your illustrious mountaineering career, what key messages would you like to give listeners pearls of wisdom that you'd like to pass on from the highest mountains in the world? I guess one of them would be the benefits of just giving up our, our kind of clutch for, for comfort. You know, we all love comfort in our life and we avoid discomfort wherever we can. It's not easy to do that, but I think there's huge potential in embracing the discomfort that a little bit of uncertainty brings us. Um, when you think about the world today, you know, there's all this new technology around and, and it, for the most part, it's about making our lives more comfortable. But in doing so, it's taking out that opportunity for the unknown, for 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 a little bit of adventure in our lives. And when you're willing to get a little bit uncomfortable, when you're willing to become adventurous and explore, like a, a whole bunch of things open opens up to you, an array of possibilities that weren't there before. And I, I think there's something to be said for that, for going out and going out into the unknown because you'll be a much better person at the other side of it. Leave us with three words about Everest that we can take away. Three words about Everest. Describing it. Beautiful, spiritual, and peaceful. Patrick Hollingsworth, thank you very much for your time coming on to Talking Trading. Not too many people have climbed to the rooftop of the world. I feel very privileged. Thanks very much, Caroline. Cheers. Stay tuned next week, guys, for the behavioral economist and scientist, the famous Terence O'Dean. I'm Caroline Stephen. Have a good week. Happy trading in the markets. We'll see you next show. You've been listening to TalkingTrading.com.au with Caroline Stephen. Make sure you are subscribed to this website to receive the very latest market views, commentary, and expert opinion. Tune in next week as we've got a bumper show planned. Bye for now. The views represented on Talking Trading are general in nature and do not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Before acting on any of the information, consider its appropriateness in regard to your own situation.